A feeling of dread is growing inside me. I walk past our building to where the street finishes at a barricade with a view over the harbour lower down and sit on the bench that's thoughtfully provided there, looking back up the street. Lights show in a few of the houses, but the windows of our building remain dark. There's something different about the street, but I can't put my finger on it. I have a feeling some of the houses are the wrong colour and maybe some of the front gardens are not quite right, either too lush or not lush enough. This is what dementia would be like. Could it be that I'm much older than I think and things have changed around me, but I'm fixated on the way they were in the past? In this unfathomable future, our apartment building has inexplicably been abandoned. If I'm demented, I wonder, would I think so rationally? I look at my hand to see if it's wizened and covered in brown spots, but it looks normal. If only I had a mirror. Oh, of course. I switch my phone to selfie mode and peer at myself on the screen. Wrinkles around my eyes and mouth show up in pitiless digital detail and my hair is lightly streaked with grey. But I'm pretty sure this face is no older than the one that grimaced at me in the mirror this morning. I'm still in my right mind. I know what day it is. Tuesday the 7th of November 2017. I switch my phone back to the home screen and glance at the readout. But oddly it reads some kind of blanks for the date and zeros for the time. Some sort of weird communication error, I suppose. I just want to go home. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Jennifer Spence reading from her new novel, The Lost Girls, in which Stella, a woman living in the Sydney suburb of Balmain, slips 20 years back in time to 1997. There are myriad warnings to be found in literature and film about changing the past, from Harry Potter to Back to the Future. But what if you had the opportunity to pull on the strings of reality and avert some great future tragedy? That's the dilemma Stella faces in this beautiful novel of love, loss and family. Hi Jenny, thanks for joining me to chat about this book. Hi Angus, nice to be here. So can you start by telling us about the day that the idea for The Lost Girls landed in your head? I guess it was um, just an experience of waiting for the bus, you know, outside the QVB and just idly glancing around. My eyes fell on a young schoolgirl in a you know, long school, school dress and... For a moment I thought she was a girl my daughter had known when she was a schoolgirl. And then I thought, of course, that's silly. It's, um, it's 20 years later. couldn't be her. And then I got on the bus and all the way home, this little idea niggled at my brain. What would happen if that really was the girl from 20 years ago? What would it be like if I got on this bus and found when I got home that it was 20 years in the past? Well, I just couldn't stop thinking about this idea and I mulled it over for a couple of days and stopped work on the book I was writing at the time just couldn't rest until I'd actually plotted out this idea. We're sitting at the moment in your beautiful home in Balmain where the book is set uh, but let's do some time traveling of our own. You grew up in the Victorian town of Ararat. Uh, what do you remember of living there? Hot, dry, everything was low, no tall buildings, uh, just a lot of sky. Uh, freezing in the winter, uh, chill planes, riding a bike to school. The whole experience of growing up in a country town, I think, 
very slow and really, um, if I want to be negative, nobody to talk to. Was it quite a bookish household that you lived in? Well, it was, fortunately. My parents had virtually no formal education, but they were both great readers and they loved books. And so I remember I learned to read before I went to school and I was reading everything I could get my hands on from a very early age. For example, I read Wuthering Heights when I was seven. (laughs) Couldn't make any sense of it at all, but but the imagery stayed with me. Um, And we didn't have many books, very few, but whenever we could get books, we got them. Um, A great treat was on a few occasions when we went to Melbourne, we would go to Hall's Bookstore in the city, uh, which was a big secondhand bookstore, and we would each get to buy a secondhand book, and that was fantastic. Your father was an electrician, but also had a bit of a penchant for storytelling. Is that right? Yes, I, I think he had... My father had his own slightly eccentric ideas about everything, and I, I think he felt it was his duty to read to his daughters. So my earliest memory is when I was five, as the youngest. He read Great Expectations to us. And again, the imagery of that has stayed vividly in my head ever since. Of course, I've read it several times since. Um, what specifically he, do you remember about that book? Oh, the scene in the graveyard, the sort of fear. When I saw the old film with John Mills and Alec Guinness, um, the scene in the graveyard was just exactly the way I'd, I'd pictured it, sitting up in bed listening to my father. So that was quite magical. Um, after Great Expectations, he read Black Beauty, which he also obviously knew about as a book for children. And of course, it's a very disturbing book and very sad and there are a lot of tears in that. But of, of course, we still loved it and remembered it from then on. Um, then he ran out of books, actually. He didn't know about any other children's books. So instead of reading to us, he told us stories. He made up stories about two little girls called Wendy and Alice and their flying carpet on which they would have all sorts of adventures. So that was pretty special too. Yeah, fantastic. And you also had a teacher in Ararat who recited Bible passages to you, not for moral instruction though. No, um, this this teacher was probably uh, the most influential teacher I've ever had. His name was Jack Thomas and he taught English and maths. So I think, like me, he was someone with the left brain, right brain of equal weight, if you like. And most times in English, he would come into the classroom and he would say, a man went down from Jericho to Jerusalem, and then he would continue with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point was, he loved that passage because it told the story so directly, so simply, and he constantly lectured to us that we should keep our language simple and direct and to the point. And that has really stayed with me ever since. Yeah, so you feel like you still apply that writing advice to your creative writing now? I do, I do. And, you know, after after a writing session, I always go back and cut bits out because, you know, I think, oh, no, too wordy, too wordy. Yes, with that parable echoing in the back of your mind. That's right, that's right. <laughs> um, before we leave Ararat, there are two pretty fabulous news stories that you told me you remember uh, seeing on the news from Ararat. What were they? Well, for a long time after I left Ararat, it never, ever featured in the news and most people I spoke to hadn't heard of Ararat. It's a little bit more on the map now, but the, the first two times I recall it being in the news, once was when um, a young guy got bitten by a lion because he went into the lion enclosure of a visiting circus. And the other one was when a man in his 90s became a father. 
So these are the things that Ararat was remarkable for. Well, there you go. Remarkable indeed (laughs) on both counts. Um, So you left Ararat to go to Melbourne University, right? Yes. What did you study there? I did an honours degree in literature and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And is it right to say that that's where you started to become interested in time? Uh, Absolutely, yes. Um, I suppose I always liked the idea and books came across my path like the Once and Future King, I remember that being very influential to T.H. Uh, White. Uh, what, what was amazing about that was that Merlin lived his life backwards. So it wasn't exactly a time travel book, but it played with the ideas of time. And then in my final year, the, the hardest subject you could do in philosophy was a study of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, one textbook. And there's a lot of stuff in there about time and how we perceive time and that there is only one time etc probably completely discredited now with with the you know modern ideas of time but I just really loved all of that and went deeply into it and quoted T.H. White in the exam and you know thought of all sorts of crazy examples of, of messing with time so I think that's where I got my real love of of the ideas of time. And what about the literature side? Do you remember any other books uh, other than The Once and Future King that sort of made an impression on you at that time? The, the next thing that came across my path was The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And I didn't read the book first. I saw the film. There was a wonderful film made in the 50s. It came to our local cinema where everybody in the town saw every film that came because we just got one film a week and it would be on Friday, Saturday and Monday. Well, I loved this film so much when I saw it on Friday that I went back on Monday, which was a bit unprecedented. And I was just completely fascinated. And, of course, after that, I found the book in the library and started reading a bit of H.G. Wells. I don't think I really knew about science fiction until that time. Yeah. So since then, are there any other books or stories about time travel that strike you as particularly, you know, fantastic explorations of that theme? I think the, probably the one that stands out most is The Time Traveller's Wife because I think that is absolutely wonderful. And apart from anything else, the way she plotted that book is just awe-inspiring that, you know, to, to have two characters going through different phases of their lives intersecting in the most sort of un, unorthodox ways. But, you know, it all comes off and I thought it was a fabulous book. Yeah. So Did you see the inspiring. movie adaption? No, I didn't. I didn't. I... I suppose I will eventually, but I didn't want to be disappointed. So, you know, often when I've got a really much loved book, I'd rather not see the film. I think that's a smart move, yes. <laughs> um, so, among many other things in your life, you've been a technical writer. Mm. What is a technical writer? Well, um, it's something that I wasn't aware of at the time myself. I just answered an ad for a job that said uh, they wanted someone who had. Uh, writing skills, well, that was me. Um, analytical skills, well, that was me. And an ability to teach, and that was also me. And I thought, this sounds interesting. So I went along and against all the odds, I got the job. And the job was to write user guides for new software products. I mean, I hadn't even thought about things like that. But I did, I did know that computers were pretty baffling, bewildering things and people needed user guides. What so. sort of time period are we talking here? This was in the mid-80s. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, what had happened, I think the reason I got the job was that the school that my kids were at, you know, they were infants, um, the school had bought an Apple IIe computer and then the teacher who was really keen on this had left so nobody knew what to do with this thing. So a group of us sort of got together and figured it out and... 
and we started teaching groups of kids to do a sort of very primitive graphics program where you plotted something called a turtle and got it to draw squares and fill in circles and things. Um, and strangely enough, the user guides that came with that were so difficult to understand that I decided that I'd do a better job and I started writing a user guide in the form of a, a cartoon with you know talking bubbles and simple stuff and I showed this to the guys who interviewed me for the job and I think that's why they took me on. And it was during that time that you were working as a technical writer that this sort of line of novel ideas was sort of queuing in your head, is that right? Exactly, exactly yeah. I mean, I worked really hard as a technical writer and uh, as well as writing, I started, you know, became expert in various aspects of it and I developed courses and I was often working day and night, really, really long hours. But when it eased off a little bit, I started daydreaming more about my real wish to be a writer and started thinking up plots and got to a point where my head was so crammed with material because it was all in my memory, you know, whole scenes and dialogues and things that you know, I had to start making notes and kind of preparing myself for the next phase of my life and probably, probably the last 10 years of working full-time I was in that state. Yeah, so what were some of those books at the front of the line that started coming out onto the page? Well, first I thought through um, a children's book, uh, and that was the first one I wrote when I got my free time. Uh, That was called The Tunnels of Tarkula. And I started with that because I still wasn't fully confident of my ability to actually write a whole novel and see it through, but I thought I could manage a children's book. Next was a thriller, because, you know started as one does with the germ of an idea you know just this tiny image of somebody walking along the street and being the target of an attempted murder without even realizing it and without any idea of why anyone would want to kill them so that was the kind of core idea for the thriller and my third book was going to be um, a dystopian (laughs) novel because it hadn't occurred to me that you should choose a genre and stick with it I just thought I read lots of different books. I'll write lots of different books. So that was the kind of target I had in mind. And there's three or four others that were in the kind of infancy of development in my brain and still are. Yeah, but then The Lost Girls elbowed its way to the front. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. It demanded to be written. I was actually working on a second thriller um, and I had another book in mind to come after that. But I just couldn't leave this idea of the lost girls. It just seemed to demand to be written. Yeah. So tell us about this character, Stella, who you have slipping back to 1997 meeting a younger version of herself. Yeah, well, um, of course, people who know me and who've read the book ask if she's me. I hasten to say here that she's not me. And I've written quite a few books now with quite a lot of different characters and creating the characters is part of the joy of writing a book and create, creating them to the extent that you really feel you could have sit down and have a conversation with this person. You feel you know them. Um, I, I have a whole backstory for my characters that doesn't go onto the page but informs me. So Stella is someone who's got a background a little similar to mine. She comes from a country town but in different circumstances, completely different family set up. Uh, she has... I suppose the sort of mind I have, which is sort of analytical as well as hopefully creative. Stella's probably more on the analytical side. Uh, She shares some of my views of the world, you know, the kind of appreciation of the ironies of things that you see and the kind of political viewpoint, which 
it may not surprise you to find that I identify myself with the left, uh, and a whole lot of other things that I you know, that I share. Also, the you know the great feeling of family and the sense that family is the most important part of your life, the core of your life. So Stella shares those values, and that's so that I can write from her point of view. The subject itself, the book, demanded to be written in the first person present tense because, you know, you're inside the mind of a character, you're in a situation. If you write it in the past tense, there's always a sense that you, the narrator, know what happens afterwards. So I like to put it into a situation where the narrator has no idea of what's going to happen from minute to minute. And so to be inside her mind to that extent, you know, I had to be sympathetic with her. Yeah, you really are thrown into this bewildering thing that happens to her um, right along there with her. So how does she deal with slipping back in time and how does she disguise herself in the past? Yeah, see, I really love books where a person gets completely displaced in some way and I get annoyed when it's too easy for them because uh, it's one of the things I liked about the time traveller's wife, by the way, because he would be thrown into a completely different situation, naked, um, with no resources at all, and he would have to deal with that. Well, fortunately, Stella brought her clothes and indeed her, her handbag with her, so she had a few things. But other than that, what would you do? You know, you, you've got nowhere to live. You can't, can't go and see anyone you know and tell them that you're a time traveller because, you know, who's going to believe that? In the real world, nobody. Um, so she's a bit stuck and I did kind of introduce a little device that helped her enormously and that device was that she had an aunt who had run away from home at the age of 16 or at least that's what was generally thought and had never been heard of again and would be about the right age now so she without even planning it she goes to look at her old house to think because the first thought is would I actually see myself and my family? And she does. And then she introduces herself to them as the aunt. So they take her in. Yeah, I absolutely love those chapters where you've got Stella from the present talking to Stella from the past. So it's the yes. same character at different times. And it's such a fabulous interplay between them. Was it quite difficult to, in terms of characterization, because obviously they're the same person, but mm. you change so much, you know, it's been 20 years. So was it hard to decide which parts you were going to keep the same and which parts of the characters was going to be different? Yeah, well, that's part of the fun, of course, and, and the interaction between the... A, 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 again, you start by thinking, what would it be like for me to talk to myself 20 years ago? How, you know, how much would I have changed? And one of the things that I try to convey subtly is that they don't get on all that well. Um, because the younger Stella knows nothing of older Stella and is suspicious of it, while older Stella knows younger Stella so well that she can read her body language and read the subtext of everything she says and predict how she's going to feel about things. But at the same time, she can get a little bit irritated by younger Stella because she'll think, no, you know, that's, you're wrong about that. That's, you know, I, I, I try to do this subtly so I don't have big conflicts about them, but there is a sort of slight edge between them. Uh, which I thought was kind of fun to try and show. If you were to go back to 97, which obviously you would have thought about, what sort of person would you have found if you tried to find yourself? I think I'd, well, let me think. Yeah, I'd find somebody 
And the reason I, I guess I like this time frame is if I went back you know, in my own life, I'd find someone who is kind of um, getting on with life and juggling a whole lot of things. You know, in that kind of probably the most sort of demanding phase of your life when you, you're serious about work and you're you know, trying to sort of do that right and got various challenges going on. And I was working freelance in much the same way as Stella. Um, you've got your kids. Um, well, my kids are a little older, so but I was thinking about the stage in your life when your kids are still at school, maybe in their teens. You know, they're getting to be it's at the, the stage of life where they're the most challenging to their parents and... You know, your relationship is kind of there, but, you know, who's got time for it? And But at the same time, you've got friends and you're going out and, you know, there's just a whole lot of whole lot of stuff about your life in that phase that I wanted to think back on and, and explore. And, of course, Stella's major dilemma is that she is all-knowing in terms of what her family is going to go through and endure uh, in the future yeah. and of course she sort of has this sense that it's probably not a good idea to adjust things in the past and try and change the course of the future but then of course it would be very hard to resist that uh, what would you do in her situation would you would you meddle meddle with the strings of fate I like to think I wouldn't because you know I know I know there are very real reasons why that's not a good idea but in fact I think pretty well everything you do is going to meddle with the future every conversation you have that's not exactly the same as before. Just the very fact that you're there, there is, um, there is a suggestion in the book that just the very presence of the older Stella in the house creates tension in the house and you know, could potentially lead to you know, a breakdown in the relationship between Stella and her husband Richard. So things like that are almost inev- inevitable. Um, the situation in the book, of course, is that there's something Stella very much wants to change but she doesn't actually know what she can do to change it. So she's searching for a way of, of making something right. And I don't want to talk too much about what that is, obviously. Mm. But um, it's not obvious to her what she can do to make that right. But at the same time, just by having conversations with people, she starts inadvertently changing things anyway. And the other great challenge and great fun of writing the book was that when I thought about that, I thought, okay, if she changes something, then what happens after that will be different. And her memory, because she's really still at the other end of that, as the older Stella, so her memory of what happened will not be the same as it was before. So she, there are things that she remembered, but now because she's changing the, you know, the source, they'll be different. So I have to show her remembering something one way and then later on remembering it another way and I have to do that in a natural way so that it's just you know Stella musing on things Um, because the thing is Stella herself the narrator has no idea that she's changed things. And when she eventually decides to uh, reveal to a couple of the other characters that she is in fact from the future she uses the uh the death of Princess Diana to prove that she is from the future because I think she goes back a couple of weeks before that incident. I, I started I started by wanting to you know set the novel in present time and have her go back twenty years, and then I started working out dates because when I write it sounds pretty mundane, but I actually 
do a, a chart of the actual dates and the days. Now, that's because I like to know what time of year it is, what the weather's like. You know, if you go through several months, what the weather's going to be like later. That's the analytical side coming in. That's to the right. Creative. That's yeah. right. But, you know, what time does it get dark? If, you, if your character's out and about at 6.30 for you know, reasons demanded by the plot, What's it going to be like? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be light? Um, what's you know what things are going to be in bloom? There's a little motif of the book of the jacarandas. So, um, and I like that idea. So I started you know in jacaranda season, uh, and then I went back. When I went back, I wanted it to be not jacaranda season. So there's the first indicator that things were wrong. So I made it a little earlier, um, jasmine season or winter. And so I kind of, when I plotted out the dates and I thought, now, would there be any way she could prove she's from the future? I realised then that the death of Princess Diana was going to fall right into that period. So that was good fortune for me. And I thought I could use that. wasn't sure for a while how I'd use it, but I could use it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting as well because you said that when writing about that event in the book, you didn't look up anything about the event, right? You just right, sort of yeah. uh, wrote about what you remembered of it because that's what Stella would have had to do. Exactly, yeah. because the the point is Stella doesn't come equipped into the past. She didn't know she was coming to the past, so she hasn't got any references. She And a couple of times in the book, she bemoans the fact that she doesn't have Google and can't look things up. Um, so I thought, okay... I can, I've got clear memories of that time. I'll just write it the way I remember it. And you know, it's feasible that she would remember it like that too. It's interesting because with, let's say, historical fiction where authors are going hundreds or thousands of years back into the past, obviously that involves a lot of research so the writer can recreate that time in all the relevant detail. But also I would imagine they've got a little bit of wiggle room because obviously people didn't experience that time. Um, whereas you're going back 20 years. So most of the people reading your book uh, would have been alive then, obviously. So what sort of things did you have to look out for uh, in creating this time of 1997 in a realistic way? A lot of it was, I guess, technology, you know. Um, where were we in terms of computers and mobile phones and all of the things that we take for granted now? Um, so I had to... Uh, I. Initially, I would use my own memory, but then I always had to check. So I'd think, okay, it would have been like this. I remember it being like this, but am I sure? You know, am, have I got that a little bit wrong? So, you know, I would, I would set the scene, and then I would go and check that it really was like that in 1997. Um, there's another thing that I really, it's a bit more subtle, but the world changed in 2001 and you know we're all aware of that and there was a kind of an innocence or you know lack of fear in in the years leading up to 2001 that was was just abruptly changed i was on a plane on 911 heading for los angeles uh, coming from sydney fortunately not from the other side of the usa and uh, at a certain point a couple of hours out the captain came on the PA and he said well something's happened in the United States and it's going to disrupt your your um, connecting flights and we all started saying you know what what can it be uh, and then he came on again and he said sorry but you know we're going to have to land in a maintenance area and none of you will be taking more flights today 
And we were kind of saying to each other, oh, ridiculous, this is Americans, you know, something must have happened at some airport and now they're, you know, they're shutting everything down and they're overreacting. And there was no sense at all of dread or fear or anything um, until we got off the plane and the airport was taken over with FBI who were kind of herding us out and brandishing guns and things. And then you suddenly thought, these people are really afraid. This is like war. And from then on, especially for the rest of my trip, which was actually around the world for work, so it involved a few more flights, there was always this kind of fear. And even now when you see a plane flying over, you know, you always look twice at it. So I was trying to show how all of that didn't exist before 2001. Yeah, and it was a bit of sort of a turning point in global consciousness in a lot of ways right that's right yeah so there's a scene at a party where everyone's kind of babbling on and talking about the future and all the things they think will happen and you know Stella is in a situation of knowing that most of them are completely wrong yeah I love that scene because she has that realization that everyone spends their entire time chatting about what they think is going to happen what's going to happen in the future you know what's the weather going to do tomorrow what's the election outcome going to be what's technology going to be like in 10 years it's so funny we really do spend so much time speaking about what's going to happen in the future that's right and trying to predict it and we never get it right who would have thought who would have thought back then that people would walk around you know with this device in their hand kind of looking at that and, and nothing else you know, we, we knew the technology would advance, but we would never have pictured the way it is now. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the thing about the future. It's um, unimaginable in yeah, many ways. that's right. Yeah. So, Jenny, we've talked a lot about time in regard to this book, but the time slip in The Lost Girls is really just the mechanism to kick off the story. So what is The Lost Girls really about? Um, it's really about sort of families and how they relate to each other and, and love love between parents and children, I guess, is a big factor. So the relationship between Stella and her daughter is something that, you know, I hope is quite poignant that a lot of people will relate to. And the fact that, you know, there's almost an epidemic of girls kind of dissociating themselves from their families and coming to grief and, you know, it hasn't hasn't stopped. And it's something that I wanted to write about, you know, not from my experience, but from the heart, from my observation of, of life and what people do. There's also, and I didn't realise when I started, but an important factor is the relationship between mothers and daughters at the other end. So the fact that Stella gets to see her mother, who has died in the interim, and spend time with her again is something that was very important to me because after my mother died, I think it took me quite a few years to stop having this yearning to just just go and see her and sit down and be bored by her rambling and tell her the latest things I'd observed that might have interested her and I think the relationship between mothers and daughters is something that you can't even come to terms with in one book but I think it's something that's worth writing about. I do remember you admitting that you have a, in your words, a wicked wish to make the reader cry. And yes. I think that wish will come true for a lot of readers. So. Well, I made myself cry. <laughs> <laughs> Even every time I edited certain bits. Oh, so, there you go. But maybe that's just me. Well, yeah, readers be warned. <laughs> um, Jenny, thank you so much for joining me to chat about this really fabulous, beautiful book. I absolutely loved it. I've read it twice. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you, Angus.
The Lost Girls by Jennifer Spence is out now from Simon & Schuster. It's available from all good bookshops, including Good Readings, online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Thanks for listening.